Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today is the 89th birthday of this radio station, WDEV, one of the oldest family-owned independent radio stations in the country. So first, I just want to say happy birthday and thank you to Ken Squire and the Squire family for preserving this community kitchen table of the airwaves, a meeting place for local news, culture, and politics. This birthday is especially significant against the backdrop of the collapse of local news coverage around the country, as my next guest has written about in her newest book. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist of the Washington Post, the former public editor of the New York Times, and the former editor of the Buffalo News, where she started her career as a summer intern. Her newest book is called Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. Margaret Sullivan, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be asked to participate. Well, and congratulations on your new book, which for people who follow the news is, I find, a page turner, albeit a, a little bit depressing one, but an enlightening one. Thank you. I, uh, a friend of mine said he's never been so entertained and depressed at the same time. So I guess that's a compliment, given the subject matter. <laughs> I think that's a very good description of it. So, you know, right now, if you ask people, most people, what's the greatest threat to the media, uh, they might say, and I might say, it's President Trump's daily assaults on fake news, as he calls it. But you write that another crisis is happening more quietly. Um, what is that crisis? So the, the quiet crisis that's happening is that local news organizations, particularly local newspapers, both weeklies and dailies have lost their footing in terms of the business model that they've relied on for such a long time. The long time major source of revenue that paid the bills, paid people salaries, et cetera, was print advertising. I mean, subscriptions were also important, but not as important as print advertising. And that print advertising is has been diminishing for many years. Then it took another huge leap downward um, when the Great Recession of 2008 came along. And now, because of the coronavirus pandemic, another huge hit has, has happened. So we're seeing literally thousands of newspapers in the United States go out of business. 2,100 went out of business between 2004 and 2019, and there have been dozens more since. Now, the majority of those were weeklies or non-dailies, but there have been some dailies too, and there have been some sizable dailies that have gone out of business. And Dave, even those that, um, that have stayed in business, in some cases, are so diminished in terms of their content that they're referred to as ghost newspapers, which helps to explain the title of my book, Ghosting the News. So of, of the many forces that have been buffeting the news business, what would you identify as most responsible or who, who or what for killing off local news? Well, you know, I'm a person who lives on the internet. I'm active on social media. 
I'm constantly reading things on the internet. I love the fact that we have the advantages of distributing our work globally. Nevertheless, if I have to come up with one um, culprit for what's happened to newspapers particularly and local news generally, it's the internet. I mean, it has, it has taken the model that allowed newspapers to put a couple hundred reporters in a community and just um, decimated that. Now, did newspaper leadership respond well to the internet? Definitely not, you know, as a whole. Um, we weren't very nimble. We weren't very visionary. We were hoping everything would go back to the way it was. And of course, that never happened. We also were um, deluding ourselves into thinking that digital advertising would make up the difference. And it, it absolutely never has. People talk about print advertising dollars and digital dimes, and that might even be optimistic. One of the things you quote is a Pan America study from last year that uh, reports, quote, with the loss of local news, citizens are less likely to vote, less politically informed, and less likely to run for office. Democracy, in other words, loses its foundation. What is the connection between local news and all these democratic, uh, you know, kind of foundational things? Well, um, we need to function in a democracy and to function in, as citizens, we need a shared reality of facts that we can all believe in. And we may not agree on what to do about those facts. We may have very different ideas, but we are engaged because we can talk to each other about what's happening in our communities. We can consider uh, how our public officials are performing, all that sort of thing. When that information fades away, people tend to do a couple things. They become less engaged as citizens. They tend to vote only along party lines, whichever it may be. They don't cross the aisle very much. Um, they become more polarized. Um, it's, it's as if this local news was somehow a, a tonic that was allowing people to function better as citizens. And I mean, as a, someone who spent, you know, three decades at a local newspaper in Buffalo, I can understand why. I mean, I did, you know, I covered the Buffalo School Board and the Erie County government and all that sort of thing. And that information is the kind of thing that people need to make good decisions about being a citizen. You, there are a couple of quotes in here that are uh, jarring. One is Warren Buffett, who said in an interview last year uh, that the newspaper business over the last few decades went from monopoly to franchise to competitive to toast, uh, close quote. And the other quote I found very jarring was your former boss, New York Times executive editor, Dean Bacay, who uh, is quoted as saying, uh, I think most local newspapers in America are going to die in the next five years, except for the ones that have been bought by a local billionaire. What is your response? Where do you land when, uh, on, you know, what's your view of it? Well, um, certainly from a 
you know, if you look at the trajectory of local news um, over the past 20 years, it's a little hard to argue with any of that. But I do think we have the opportunity right now to do some things to shore up this important industry. And, you know, really, that's the reason I wrote this book. Um, people in general, it's, you know, there have been surveys that show that people think that local news is in pretty good shape financially. Something like 71% of the respondents to a big survey said, yeah, you know, I think my local news organizations are doing fine. Well, they're really not doing fine. Um, so I'm trying to get the message out that if you appreciate local news, it's time to start supporting it in, uh, by opening your wallet and subscribing and also, you know, helping to find solutions by letting your elected officials know that you think this is really important. I mean, there are a few different things that are being considered um, from a public policy standpoint that could be very helpful. And, you know, if people, if, if politicians and elected officials think that there's public support for these things and it matters to people, they're more likely to get it going. So you also look around the country at some new models of bringing local journalism to people. What are some of the ones that you find most promising? Well, I think overall the most promising development is the coming of many digital nonprofit sites. Um, in fact, I think VT Digger is one that's pretty pretty prominent in your area. Yes, and, it is. And there's not, you know. And full disclosure, my son is working as a summer intern there. Okay, well, great. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's great. Um, to the extent that we can support and nurture those news organizations, I think we'll be in better shape. Um, you know, the prototypical one is probably the Texas Tribune in Austin and it's, it's successful. They get a lot of philanthropic dollars. They do this huge event um, called the Texas Tribune Festival in the fall, um, virtual this year, unfortunately, but normally, you know, bringing lots of people together and it makes a lot of money. Um, the problem is it doesn't scale. You can't really put one of those things in every community that had a weekly newspaper. It, it's just not gonna happen. Um, so I think that those, those news organizations can be a big part of the solution, but I think that it would be a mistake to think that they will completely fill the gap. Is print journalism dead? Is, is the, the tactile experience of holding a paper in your hand part of just something that's gonna go away? I don't think it's dead. I, I feel like there are some stories that can be told best in print. And, you know, it's oh, always interesting, interesting. Even, even in this moment, we're still awfully focused on front pages. What did the New York Times do when, you know, the, that big headline they had when a milestone was reached in COVID-19 deaths? Well, you wanted to see that in print because that's where it had this sort of lasting impact. You could pick it up in your hands and you could say, now it's real, I'm holding it. Um, so I think it still has great impact. Does that mean that it's viable? 
um, from an economic standpoint? No, you know, and that's sort of the, the push and pull here is the things that are still, that still have great value, whether it's a reporter going to the town board meeting or the power of print, absolutely undeniable. Can you support them? Not so, not so clear. Um, so, but when I talk about local news, I'm not talking only about the printed newspaper. It's a whole ecosystem of public radio, um, television stations, newspapers, nonprofit sites, and other things that are springing up. So um, just as there are lots of different pieces, I think the solution to the local news problem is a, is a piecemeal one, a kind of a patchwork. What has the coronavirus done to local news that was already reeling? Well, it's done something very paradoxical because it, for one thing, people are depending on it more than ever. Um, and readership is way up at a lot of local news organizations. Meanwhile, you know, so that's the good news is there's more engagement. People realize, oh, well, if I really want to find out about my local hospital and whether they have enough ventilators, for example, or what the rules are on reopening, um, this is a pretty good source for me. On the downside, however, whatever advertising was left that was supporting the, these newspapers has been further diminished in a pretty dramatic way. You know, the minute there were shutdowns, um, stay-at-home orders or things were just closed, all of those dollars, whether they were for theater or restaurants or travel or whatever it may be, even things like car dealerships, real estate, a lot of that advertising just kind of fell off the cliff even more than it had been. So it's been a very, very bad development. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation, and we're talking in this half hour with Margaret Sullivan. She is the public editor of the Washington Post and the author of a new book called Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. Um, Margaret, I'm curious, your story is uh, typical to some extent of your era. You graduated uh, from Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism uh, with a master's degree in 1980, landed a summer internship at your hometown uh, paper, the Buffalo Evening News at that time. And you rose through the ranks to become the first female editor. You talk to young journalists today uh, you know, who perhaps are following a similar path, going to journalism school. Do you think if you were coming out of journalism school today in 2020, you would follow, you would even choose journalism based on what you see out there? Well, you know, I have two children who are um, sort of young millennials, and uh, I am a little relieved that they're not, that they haven't gone into journalism, even though they grew up in a household with mom and dad both being journalists. Uh, they both, one is a lawyer and one is about to start law school. Um, but I have closely followed the careers of some young journalists with great interest. And I'm, I find that their career paths are fascinating. And if, you, if I may, I'll just take a, a minute to describe uh, the three, three of them because they're very interesting. So, so one, a young woman who was my daughter's roommate, came up at New York University, you know, worked on college publications, 
went to work for one of the all digital sites called Mike, M-I-C, which is now basically out of business. And she has, you know, through ups and downs, but always in New York City, always digital, is now working at a place called Business Insider as an editor. Okay, great. Now here's another person, uh, my nephew, who is the who covers um, health, healthcare, and medicine for the Hill newspaper in Washington D.C. Basically, covers Capitol Hill for this, you know, very well-read um, congressional site and paper. And he has, you know, he had one internship at a print organization and at a newspaper in Pittsburgh, but otherwise, he's been in D.C. Um, basically working digitally. And then one other person who's a TV journalist, a young woman, um, came out of Buffalo TV, went off to get a master's in data journalism, and is back at a nonprofit in Buffalo, similar to VT, VT Digger, and uh, it's called Investigative Post, and she's a data journalist, a data investigative journalist there. So they have not at all had the same kind of career path I had, but they're all making money. They're, you know, paying the rent. They're doing really great work. Um, you know, interestingly, one in New York, one in Washington, um, and one in Buffalo. So, you know, the concentration, I think, of journalists more and more in New York and Washington and on the West Coast is uh, a big development, maybe not such a positive development, because then we don't cover the rest of the country so well. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about where we started, which was President Trump's daily assaults on the news media. What do you feel has been the impact of that? Well, I think it's been terrible, honestly. I think it's, it's, it has exacerbated the mistrust of the press um, among all people of all sorts, not just his base. Um, when you have the President of the United States, even if it's a president you don't happen to agree with, constantly putting down the role of the press um, to say that unless they're doing flattering stories about him, they're not doing legitimate news, I think it sort of seeps into a societal point of view. And I find it very troubling. I mean, it also has, has crept into. Um, into other countries, so you, that you hear leaders of you know democracies that lean a little bit populist or autocratic, even um, talking about fake news, um, talking about how terrible the press is, and I think it's it's been extremely dispiriting, and I think it's does harm. So I I find it very distressing, and um, and hope that that there's no permanent damage. I can't help but think as we watched media coverage of the protests following uh, the killing of George Floyd, that the numerous attacks on journalists that we saw, uh, you could draw a direct line between the kind of incendiary talk that Trump uh, does about the media. That's right. And one thing that was disturbing about that is you you would like to see your elected officials, and we did see this with some governors and mayors, come forward and say, the press is doing a really important job here, and they deserve our, you know, some level of, of respect and hands off. But he didn't do anything like that, and never does. 
um, there's never any um, there's never any statement about supporting the press as a bulwark of our democracy. That's just not in President Trump's vocabulary. So one of the things that has come under scrutiny uh, in you know the, the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement has been a, a hard look at newsrooms, uh, which are now the charges of racism and political correctness being leveled and a very close examination of who tells the stories that we read or, or watch in the news. Uh, one of the issues that you've weighed in on was uh, Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed that ran in the New York Times in, in which it called for uh, a military or a militarized police response to protests. What is your view? Should that have run in the New York Times? Well, you know, um, I am no longer the public editor of the New York Times, and I, 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 I have to correct something you said earlier. I'm not the public editor at the Washington Post either. I'm a columnist Sorry. there. No, that's all right. But, you know, people think I still do that job, and I don't. So I'm hesitant to sort of play public editor in absentia. Um, but I do think that there were, you know, people want to frame that situation as, well, the Times should just should be able to, without criticism, publish points of view from across the political spectrum. And that sounds pretty reasonable, um, but until you look at it a different way, which goes something like this. The New York Times is a singularly important um, megaphone. So when they choose what to amplify, it matters. In this case, a senator was I mean, the headline literally said, send in the troops. So a senator was calling for the use of the US military, um, seemingly against people who were exercising their right to protest. So um, is that something that the New York Times should be choosing to amplify? Um, you know. I have a problem with the argument that, oh, well, we just need to publish all points of view. That's not the case. Newspapers and op-ed pages are constantly making choices and it matters what they choose. You know, granted, they don't wanna be speaking with one voice and they should have a broad spectrum of opinion, but, um, but they do make choices. And uh, I think that that one was certainly questionable, if not worse. You wrote a column in the Washington Post last month recounting what you called your bad news judgment. Uh, it was a story in the Buffalo Globe News in 2010, in which uh, it was a story about a mass shooting of African-American residents that included a description of some of the victims' criminal records. Why 10 years later did you revisit this story? Well, racial turmoil is very much in the conversation right now. And what's happening in newsrooms in questions of diversity, judgment, whose story gets to be told, these are issues that could hardly be more important right now. I learned a lot from what I now consider to be a, a mistake. I tried to, and I think did at least partially, um, make some amends and learned a lot. And I thought it might be useful for people to 
read about it 10 years later and think about, you know, ways that our points of view might need to be reexamined. What did you learn from that? Well, what I learned was that uh, what looks like a good story can be, you know, from a purely journalism, is this interesting news aspect, can be a bad idea. A good story can be a bad idea because it, in this case, it blamed the victims. It, it, it contributed to victim blaming, which is not something that we ever want to do. Okay. Well, Margaret Sullivan, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist of the Washington Post. Her newest book is called Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vermontconversation.com. Tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.